Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For the next three weeks, before we dive into the final three chapters of Matthew, yes, the end is in sight, I want to take you on a little side trip and explore the often misunderstood, wonderfully beautiful, and always popular idea of repentance. By the way, we've locked the doors in case someone tries to escape. <laughs> Captive audience here. I've named this series The Joy of Repentance. It will go for at least the next three weeks. Today, part one, we will look at several things. First, some inter- introductory comments regarding why preach on repentance and what is repentance. And then we will look at the first of three primary aspects of repentance that we'll discover over the next few weeks. I'm not going to say everything there is to say about repentance, but I am hoping and praying that we will say enough and trust God to say what needs to be said. So stand with me, and we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. This is God's word. For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are the one that causes growth. I pray, Lord, that we would experience your goodness now and, and your grace as you, as you grow our souls. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Second Corinthians 7, 8 through 11 reveals a key characteristic of repentance, true repentance. But first I want to start with some preliminaries, kind of set the table, so to speak, for a look at repentance. So the first question I want to answer is, why preach on repentance? You know, is there something going on at Grace Church that you haven't heard of and, and I'm going to now address this? No, I'm going to put your, put your heart at rest. No, there's nothing like that going on. I do believe God led me to this topic, though, and one of the reasons is because repentance is a really good thing. Repentance is good. Now, you may say, no, it's not. It is a negative thing. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasurable. It's not fun. Therefore, it is bad. It's a bad thing. Now, Thomas Brooks graphically defined repentance as The vomit of the soul. The the barf of the soul. 
Now, we don't think of throwing up as a good thing, right? Throwing up is an ambush. Throwing up is a hostile takeover of your body by foreign substances. It's not pleasurable. Not a good thing. It's revolting, not joyful. I mean, this is like saying, the joy of root canals. Had one. It's awesome. The joy of diarrhea. Now we've gotten barfing and diarrhea out in this sermon. What's next? Had that, by the way. A few times. The joy of taking out smelly trash. I've done that a few times myself. The joy of picking up lawn presents left by your dog. Messy little piles. Now, at my house, we pay Savannah to do that. She asked for the job, we gave her the gig. All these things I've mentioned, by the way, are not pleasant to go through, but they lead to joy. They lead to goodness. They lead to, shall we say, celebration, even. Now, I want you to think about it with me. I'm sorry, but I've got to take you there. Because Thomas Brooks said that repentance is the vomit of the soul. And I just love that. I want you to think with me for a moment how you feel, not right before you throw up. I wouldn't do that to you. Wouldn't even want you to think about that. But how do you feel after you throw up? Now, that's another story, right? You feel awesome. A bit messy, you know. A, a little de- dehydrated, but overall relieved. Like you're a new person. You were dying. You, you were being attacked by aliens, and, and now you've you're, you got a new lease on life. It's awesome. The moments after you throw up it, are, it are just, there's nothing like it. <laughs> Repentance is not pleasant. We can all agree on that, right? Repentance is not pleasant, but it is good. And God wants you to experience its joy. Now, you may not share my enthusiasm at this point. I can understand. Yet. But I want you to love repentance. So the first reason why I'm preaching on repentance is it's a really good thing. And it's, it's sometimes just ignored. I've, I've got a lot of books, and I've been kind of pouring through my books, and the, it's kind of conspicuously missing. It's a really good thing. That's, it's kind of like that ingredient that makes everything taste better, but everyone doesn't talk about it. Repentance. It's a good thing. Now, there's a second reason why I'm preaching on repentance, because it is a really needed thing. I already told you I'm uh, not getting up here on a hobby horse and trying to correct something. Those are the type of things you do personally, right? One-on-one, things like that. But repentance is a really needed thing. Now, there was a new study done. And I'm not the type that throws out a lot of percentages and statistics and what have you. But I need to share this one with you because when you hear it, you're going to be like, wow. I never realized that. New study done. It's shown that one out of every one people sins. A hundred percent of people sin. 
Government spent millions on it. Billions even. And they've also figured out that 100% of the people sin and will continue to do so at alarming rates. And they all need to repent. 100% of people need to repent. It's a very needed thing. Now there's a nerve that keeps getting hit in my life. There's a a chord that keeps getting struck in my heart. And it's not about you. It's about me. I'm selfish. I'm thinking about my own heart and I'm thinking, am I repenting? Am I really repenting of my sins? Am I I growing in in holiness? Am 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 I making progress in Christ? Or am I just going on fumes? Now that same chord gets struck having to do with, with your life as well. I mean, as I, as I live my life in Christ, as I lead my family, as I lead this church, uh, that thought crosses my mind often. It, are the people of grace truly repenting? Are they, are they growing in holiness? Are they, are they really doing those hidden things that God wants to have happening in the heart that shows in the life. We all have blind spots, and God is very gracious to us to reveal those, those blind spots. He does so to me. I know He does so to you. He, he uses people in the process. He uses His Word by His Spirit. Now, I already said that I'm not picking on, you know, any one specific thing that's going on at Grace a lot of great things are happening at this church. A lot of great things happening in my life. A lot of great things happening in your life. But I'm aware of some things that are going on and have gone on at Grace in people's lives. I'm aware of things that went on 25 years ago I wasn't even here for that kind of keep backwashing up to the, up to the shore. I'm not saying everyone's like this at Grace. This is a, I love this church. This is an awesome church. But there are some unsavory elements in every church, except the one in heaven. But in every church, these kind of elements happen and, and appear at times. And, and I just, I'll mention a couple things I know that at Grace, and they shouldn't be a big surprise to you unless this is your first Sunday. But at Grace, there are people who have a tendency to gossip. That's when you talk behind someone's back and you're sharing information and even slander. Slander. Saying things that aren't necessarily true behind people's back. And there's a tendency on the part of some in our church to to impose their opinions very strongly on other people. Those are a few of the things that, that we struggle with as a church, but they remain hidden, but they crop up and they hurt people. So this, is, this idea of repentance is a very needed thing. It's a very necessary thing. Now there's one more reason that I'm, that I'm preaching on repentance, and it's, it's that repentance is a really tricky thing. It's, it's kind of confusing. It's, it's hard to get your, your mind and your heart around. There's this tendency among Christians to think that if you just feel really, really, really bad about your sins then you've repented 
that, you know, I, I'm really, really wallowing in it right now. I am feeling low. I repented. I am, I am miserable over getting caught. Or I am, I am, I am just so embarrassed that people found out. Or, or I'm just, I'm just feeling so bad about myself and what I did. And, and they equate that with repentance. A lot of Christians stop there. I felt bad. I repented. We declare ourselves mature. We declare ourselves godly. We declare ourselves growing in Christ-likeness. Uh, we, we declare ourselves repentant because we think we feel horrible enough about our sins. So what we do is we, we really adopt a subjective definition of repentance without asking if it's actually biblical. Always a good thing for professing Christians to do. We either, we either do nothing but feel bad or then on the other side of the spectrum, here's what we do. There's this tendency to say, hey, I know what a Christian is supposed to look like. Now I'm not feeling it. And I've got a hard heart, but if I just look like that when I go to church or when I hang out with other Christians, they're going to think I repented. So I'm just going to be uh, like what I'm supposed to be like, and they bypass the heart. So we change our behavior. We do behavior modification without a change of heart. It doesn't last. What I want is for us to think rightly about repentance so that we'll actually do true repentance. So what is repentance? A lot of people will just tell you, well, it's, it's, you know, it's a U-turn, right? That's part of it, yeah. It's the idea of you, you're going in one direction and you realize that you're going in the wrong direction, so you turn around, you do a 180, and you go in the opposite direction. Repentance, Greek word is metanoia, and its various forms, is a change of mind or a change of purpose that is reflected in your life that you act differently, that you behave differently when it happens. Quite simply, you could just say it's a change of mind resulting in a change of behavior. Repentance. Wayne Grudem calls repentance a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So it's not just sorrow, but it's a heartfelt sorrow and then renouncing of sin and sincerely committing to, to not do that sin and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, repentance has different elements, different parts, and, and there's an intellectual part of it. Your mind is thinking, and some people just stop there. You, you know sin is wrong. So you go, okay, well, I know sin is wrong, so therefore I must have repented. That's part of repentance. There's the intellectual thing. Intellectually, you know sin is wrong. But then there's the emotional aspect of it. The emotional aspect of it is you say, you know, I, I, I'm experiencing sorrow over this sin. I know it's wrong, and I'm also sorrowful about it. And, and even I'm, I'm beginning to hate it. You hate your sin. It's like Jesus when he, in the Beatitudes, talking about the pure in heart. But before that, he talks about the poor in spirit. The ones who say, I'm bankrupt. I got nothing apart from Jesus. 
The ones who mourn. The ones who mourn over their sins. They say, I, I'm, I'm lost without Christ. So there's an intellectual part. You say, you know sin is wrong. There's the emotional part where you say, I'm experiencing sorrow over this and I hate it. I hate that sin. But then there's the willful aspect that, that gets lost sometimes in the, in the equation. You decide to turn from it. You don't just think it and feel it, but you, you act upon it. So you, you do what's called renouncing it or forsaking it. You disassociate yourself from it. You turn in your membership card. And then you live in obedience to Christ. Repentance is the response of a total person. Mind and, and heart and, and, and will. And it's sometimes called total surrender. What happens when you repent is you're different inside, so you want to live differently. That's, that was my story. When I became a, a believer back in 1982, I was in college, and I was like, I want to be different than I have been. I love Jesus. He saved my soul. Now I want to I please Him. But it's not just the start of the Christian life where you say, okay, I repent and believe, which is the preaching. We're going to look at that next week. The expectation of, of repentance. But I'm going to repent and turn from my sins and turn to Christ. That is something that God brings us to, but it's not a one-time occurrence. Like, hey, I told, you know, my spouse I, I loved her once, so that covers the rest of our lives. It's, it's an over and over and over again loving and choosing to love, and, and it's the idea of the, the life of a Christian should be one of continual repentance. Martin Luther, when he, when he tacked his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door, the very first one was that the Christian life should be all about repentance. One of continual repentance. You hate your sin, you know you're poor in spirit, you're mourning over your sinfulness, so you cry out to God, and you change your direction. You make a spiritual turnaround. A 180. A Godward U-turn. Repentance is admitting that the word of God is right about Jesus and you. It's changing direction for good. It's not just a lane change. This is getting off the highway, making two lefts, and going in the opposite direction. Repentance is a gospel gift. It is a, it is a response, it is a way of life designed for the glory of God and the flourishing of Christ's church. That's what repentance is. Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three aspects of repentance. First of all, today, the, the provision of repentance. Where does it come from? Next week, we'll look at the priority of repentance, what's expected. And then the process of re repentance, the whole way of life that God enables. But today, the provision. And I just want to mention to you that even these three things I'll, I'll be highlighting are all interrelated. They're even overlapping at times. So, but it's a lot like my favorite kind of lunch one of my favorite kind of lunches is going to a Japanese restaurant and getting a bento box I love those things because you got this this box that has all these different things in it there are all these good things right and and there's like seven or eight things all in their own little cubicle and you can just eat one and mix them together and what have you, but, you know, I'll tell you my grandpa who was an Italian immigrant he lived with us for a while when I was growing up and he used to mix all his food together in the plate. 
Uh, there's someone at this church, a friend of mine who does the same thing. You go and he gets nachos or he gets some, whatever he gets and he just mix it up. Well, it's all going to the same place anyway, right? It's like, give them some time alone for a while. They're going to be together soon enough. <laughs> so, so because of that, I want to take these things a little, uh, separately, knowing that they do interlock and intersect and overlap. Um, repentance. John MacArthur says repentance is no more a meritorious work than its counterpart, faith. Because what you see about the provision of repentance is it is a gift from God. It is not something we do for God. It is something that God grants to us. And then we in turn do. It's just like faith. It's a gift from God, therefore then we can walk by faith. Now, there's scriptural support for this, obviously. This passage we're looking at today shows us this, that true repentance comes from God, not us. It's a, it's a gift of God that results in joy, not more sorrow. It's a God-given change of mind and behavior. Now, in, in gospel preaching, God uses human instruments to present the gospel message and do his work. Weak, frail human instruments that, that presents a, 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 God, a God-built message. It's a work of grace then that God does in the heart that shows itself up in a Godward orientation of life. It's a gospel gift. It's that main ingredient that makes everything Christ-centered. The Holy Spirit makes us internally aware of our sin and we resolve to live differently. It's what believers do. Repentance is what believers do in the power of the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. So we look at this passage for today in 2 Corinthians 7. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 7, and obviously we're, we're transporting into the middle of a, of a New Testament letter, and so we need to give some context and, and do a little run-up on it and, and, and find out what's going on and all that. Let me give you a couple cross-references, though, just showing the, the idea that God grants repentance. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Speaking of Jesus, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. That uh, the good servant of God must correct his opponents with gentleness uh, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Here in 2 Corinthians 7, what we're seeing, and this is a very personal letter, what we're seeing is Paul recounting a situation where God has given repentance, he's granted repentance through a very painful process where people were used by God as instruments to point someone towards reconciliation. So this is not a static thing. This is not like, you know, you can put it under a microscope in, in a laboratory. This is, this is real life where the rubber meets the road, uh, messy life. And, and what's being shown is that there's a godly grief that leads to repentance from God. God gives it. It's, it's from Him. And it's an amazing gift that's granted according to God. So I want to set a little bit of a context here for 2 Corinthians, and especially chapter 7. 
Paul here is commending the Christians in Corinth for, for repenting. When he had confronted them about their sin, it's not just one person that was being singled out. There was a group of people that were confronted with their sin, and in the process, they repented. And what also Paul is pointing out is the, a distinction between true and false repentance. We're going to look at that as well. But he's talking about repentance that comes from God, and he also mentions repentance that doesn't come from God. So the backstory here, you're going to have to go to 1 Corinthians 5 to really get uh, a, a, a look at what was going on. Now, Paul's association with the city of Corinth was a key one in his ministry. It was an important commercial city in that day. There was a lot going on in Corinth. Um, to Corinthianize meant to make someone really sinful. It was a bad place. It's like how people in the rest of the country think about Los Angeles and Orange County. It, it, it's about people that are just kind of, you know, sin run amok. That happens everywhere in the entire world. It just so happens that we are in the news more often. Paul associated with this church on his second missionary journey. It was recorded in Acts chapter 18. He spent 18 months there. He ministered there. And, and after he had left there, he heard about something going on in this church that was very bad. In fact, it's he refers to it in 1 Corinthians 5. He says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. He's saying even non-Christians won't do what, what, what this person in your church is doing. Now Paul says in verse 2, he calls them arrogant. He says you're arrogant because you should be mourning. He's not saying that they were celebrating this sin. He's saying that they were being silent about it and assumed to be condoning it. It was a tough situation, and Paul gave really tough, um, a, a really tough instruction. He basically told them, what you need to do when you're gathered together is uh, expel this person out of the, the fellowship. They cannot be with you. Let them know that if they persist in this sin, they cannot worship with you. Now, a lot of people take issue with stuff like this. And we're talking about the joy of repentance. The reason why God wanted Paul to give that church those instructions was because he knew that that was the only way that joyful repentance could come about. No one's getting kicked out this morning, by the way. I'm not, you know, I don't have some, some news I'm going to give you at the end. Don't, relax. Relax. But in that church... This was the instruction, and it was aimed at a glorious conclusion that there would be restoration, that there would be reconciliation uh, through repentance, through this beautiful gift of repentance that God gives. And the, the only way it was going to come about is if this person would be confronted with their sin and explain to them how much it grieves God, how much it's hurting the church, and how much the, it hurts them to do this, but that he, they can't, he can't be with them. This was not the only thing going on in Corinth, by the way. During his ministry, when Paul was in Ephesus, he heard more things about Corinth. There were false teachers, false apostles coming in and saying all sorts of things about Paul and turning the people's hearts away from Paul to these false teachers. 
these false apostles. And so Paul had to do all sorts of, of um, damage control on that as well. Go back over to 2 Corinthians, um, but go to chapter 2. Here's a follow-up on um, 1 Corinthians 5. It's a beautiful picture. And, and you'll see how much emotion Paul is, is expressing in this. And you see that this is, this is a heart thing. This is a you love people thing, and so it's a tough thing. He says in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 2, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. I, I don't want to do it. He said, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? He's like, I want joy in in this relationship, not sorrow. So he says in verse 3, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. What he's saying is, I, I knew that when I did what was right in God's sight, that you would respond in a good way. Verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. This is not a cold, heartless man sending down edicts on people that he doesn't care about. These are, he said, I wrote to you out of much anguish and affliction of heart and with many tears. Why is it that repentance is often accompanied by tears? Or by weeping? It's because you feel it so deeply in your emotions that that's what comes out. Paul says, not to cause you pain, but let you know the abundant love that I have for you. It was all out of love. And here's a great part, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, and he's referring to the, the man that's referred to in 1 Corinthians 5, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. It's hurt all of the church. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. See, this man's heart has been changed. There is repentance, turning from sin, aware of it, and not just feeling really, really bad about it, but feeling so bad that the life was different. Turn to God and trust in Christ's forgiveness. If anyone has caused pain, he's caused it to me, not, not only to me, but to all of you. And for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So verse 7, he says, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Bring him back. Bring him back in. He's welcome. Or, Paul says, he might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He knew that people could only take so much isolation we need body of christ why would anyone want to to be a part of be apart from be away from fellowship of believers that love them and have their best in mind you had to know that this person must have been just aching to be brought back paul says bring them back forgive them Reaffirm, verse 8, reaffirm your love for him. Give him a big old hug. Bring him into your fellowship. Don't shun him. Don't look at him sideways and think, well, is he going to do it again? Go 
What do our passage for today, 2 Corinthians 7? Verse 8. Actually, notice the build-up. Start at verse 1. Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This isn't the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christians are supposed to do. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. If you know me very well, you know I wash my hands a lot. Because I'm one of those germaphobes. If I shake your hand today, I will be washing my hands soon after. I use the juice in the back. One of my kids, not my son, so I've got four daughters, you can guess. We would say, hey, um, go wash up, go take a shower, go take a bath. And they'd come back and they would have taken a fake shower. A fake shower. I'll leave it up to you to figure out who that might have been. All I can tell you was, you remember pig pen? Dust all around. No, it was like, what's that smell? <laughs> you didn't take a shower. You took a fake shower. There were sin issues. There were sin issues. There was a <clears throat> situation, as we like to put it. There was a situation going on. And there had been a public intervention. Everybody knew about it. Somebody needed to repent of their sin. Paul had already said, forgive them. And it's almost like he takes the matter up again. He says in verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. Now, this is also about other things that were going on. There's these false teachers that, that now Paul's um, starting to be spoken badly against. And he's like, make room. Open up your hearts to us. Love us. <laughs> um, We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. It's, it's all lies. And he says, I do this not to condemn you. because you're." I said it before, verse 3. You're in our hearts to die together and live together. But he says in verse 4, I, I've acting, I'm acting boldly towards you. I, I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. And, and, and what you notice about this passage is there's all this joy. He says in, in verse 4, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. There's all this joy. The joy you feel after vomiting. Verse 5. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. What was Titus bringing? He was bringing news of this church repenting. So there was joy. He was comforted by you, and he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. So I rejoiced all the more. Verse 7. I rejoiced all the more. More joy. So then he says in verse 8. And this is, this is our, our place of residence today. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Paul says, I'm not going to repent of that. That wasn't sin. That was good for you. It's like that doctor who keeps telling you, you need to have this operation. You need to take this medicine. And you're like, no, I don't. You're like, you know better than me. Paul knew the Holy Spirit had him, had him speak and write. And, and he says, 
I grieved you, but I'm not repenting about that. Then he says, but I did regret it. You know when you do the right thing and you just wonder, did I do it, the right thing? You, you know you do the right thing, but then you start questioning yourself. You start second guessing. And you're like, did I do the right thing? And you've got this quandary going on in your heart. Paul had that. That's comforting, isn't it? Paul had that. I need to wear my reading glasses. I know exactly where they are in my truck. It says, I don't regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice. So he's rejoicing, he's happy, he's joyful, because you were grieved. Not because you were grieved. Not because of that, but because you were grieved into repenting. It led to something good. Which means they had, they had repentance from God, not from the world. He said, so you suffered no loss through us. You felt a godly grief. Verse 10, he says, a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It leads to a good result without repentance, without regretting that thing that happened. The repentance. You don't regret the process you had to go through. You don't regret having to throw up because you see how good it was for you, even though it was painful. He talks about a sorrow leading to repentance, verse 9. And then there, there's action. They, they've re, the, the repentance has happened. There's reconciliation. There's this joyful outcome. They, they have a testimony. They can rejoice. Here's what God did. But then Paul said, basically saying, here's how you can tell the real thing from God from the false thing that's not from God. The real thing that leads to joyful life, the fake thing that leads to death. You can see the difference between the two. What he's talking about is godly grief versus worldly grief. Verse 10, the godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas the worldly grief produces death. So what, the thing that stops short of true repentance leads you down the wrong road. You just wallow in your badness. You just wallow in your regret. You just wallow in your marinating in all the badness of your sin and how bad you feel about it. And then no change of heart happens. Paul says it leads to death. There's a big difference between repentance and regret. A lot of the repentance that people who are professing Christians say they are experiencing is really just regret. I got caught. I got embarrassed. I got humiliated. And, and here's the other thing. There's a lot of people that remorse and regret seem to come very quickly to because they just have that tender kind of heart. You go, whoa, they must be really good repenters. No, maybe they're just really tenderhearted about stuff. They, that doesn't mean they get to repentance. They just might be remorseful or regretful. Repentance comes easy to no one. Repentance comes easy to no one. It's a gift from God. It's granted by God. Worldly grief, Paul says, leads to death. Godly grief, Paul says, leads to life. Now believers repent and believe. True believers keep on repenting and keep on believing. That is evidence of life in Christ. Repentance is not, not just feeling really bad about 
doing something really wrong. I felt that. I felt really, really bad before. I'm sure you have. Remember when I was a kid, I broke the two wind, two front windows in our front door because I was having a battle with my sister and glass is going everywhere and we're like instantly our life was over I felt really bad there was no way to hide it I had to feel bad repentance is not just remorse or regret I have regretted tons of things buying a really bad used car I mean everyone knows you shouldn't buy a 15 year old Peugeot right I'm the car live and learn Heidelberg Catechism says godly grief, godly repentance is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. You run as fast as you can away from it. Worldly repentance that isn't true is I got caught. Godly repentance that is true is God got a hold of my heart. And it's showing in my life. prodigal that son who said hey give me everything I, I, that's coming to me I don't really care about you pops I'm leaving prodigal by the way doesn't mean wandering it means wasteful extravagance he wasted his father's riches in a far off country and then one day God grants him repentance how do we know because he came to his senses, the Bible tells us. He came to his senses. He figured it out. And he starts talking to himself. Truth, though, not, not, not lies. And he said, my dad's servants have more than I have while I'm wallowing in this pig pen. I'm going to go home. As he's coming home, his father just doesn't close the door and say, you're not my son anymore because you've sinned so bad. He runs to him. See, Jesus doesn't beat you up to make you repent. He loves you to repentance. What Paul was saying to the Romans in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. You take lightly the, you're presuming upon the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. Don't you know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Repentance is humbling. It is even humiliating. You do a U-turn, you, you kind of admit you kind of went the wrong way. Can't blame the GPS. You know what keeps most of us from repenting? Thinking that everyone else should. I guarantee you that sometime in this sermon, you've already thought of people that need to repent. But you may not have thought about your own heart. I'm good. Not so fast. <laughs> just this Friday, I'm driving to an appointment. And I'm just driving along, minding my own business. Thinking about this sermon. I was doing good things. Going to, to a good appointment. And all of a sudden, somebody's picture pops up in my head. Someone who, who I feel wronged me several years ago. Next thing you know, I'm hating on them. Can't wait till the day they repent and come to me and say, I am sorry, I blew it. Forgive me. Then, 
Next thing you know, another picture pops up in my brain. You know, the brain is like this. You're going down the low road, you get more of it. So I think of someone else who wronged me and needs to repent. And God just laid me low in the dust because what I realized when I came to my senses, and this is just a, you know, a two or three minute inter- intersection of life, right? And, and what I realized was I need to repent of hating these two people. They're not here right now. So don't worry about it. It's not you. I needed to repent of hating them. Well, that's a strong word. I wasn't, did I think I was hating them? Well, let's just let it play out. I wasn't loving on them. I think we're all testimonies in process. It's interesting we like to hear testimonies about the finished product. Every one of us is, is a testimony in process. Give your testimony about what God's doing in your life right now. Every saint has a past. Every sinner has some sort of future. If repentance is absent from your life, your soul is in jeopardy. And it's never too late for the breathing to repent. Take your pulse. Are you alive? Just take it. Really seriously, trust me. Take your pulse. Is your heart beating? Hope for you. It's hope for the, for the breathing. Repentance is crucifixion. Repentance is, is dying to self. Repentance is not my will but yours be done. Repentance is worship. Tim Keller, as the worship team comes back up, Tim Keller, I like the way he puts this. He says, our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own, so it's not so traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. In religion, we repent less and less often. But the more accepted and loved in the gospel we feel, the more and more often we will be repenting. And though, of course, there is always some bitterness in any repentance... In the gospel, there is ultimately sweetness. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. The more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace looks to you. You see, repentance goes beyond being the vomit of the soul. It is the celebration of the soul made right with God through their Savior Jesus. It is, it is the soul saying, Jesus paid my debt. I don't want to do anything that would displease Him. Lord God, we, we come to You needy, acknowledging that from You and through You and to You are all things, including repentance. Our repentance is not our gift to you, Lord. It is, it is your gift to us. May you grant repentance, Lord, even now to those who are outside of Christ, that they may see the beauty of the cross and turn from their sins and to a loving Savior.
And for all Christians hearing these words, Lord, that, that we would, would know that the cross says repent and the cross bought repentance and the cross produces repentance. Lord, may we, may we bask in your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.